episode of Bearded Wholesome and All Things Baltimore. This is episode nine of season five. And tonight I have a very special guest. He is born and raised from Baltimore, uh, West Baltimore, that is. And he is a filmmaker and just recently produced a film on the Squeegee Boys, the Squeegee Kids of Baltimore. Uh, my guest tonight is. Uh, filmmaker extraordinaire Matthew Cooper. What's going on, Matt? I'm good, brother. I'm good, Matt. I appreciate you having me on, buddy. I I appreciate you joining the show, man. It's 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 good to finally get a chance to talk to you. We've been talking about doing this show for uh, a better part of a year and a half, almost two years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to finally connect. You know, I finally finished the film. Uh, started in 2022, and um, a little over 18 months later, here we are. So glad to be here with a finished product and promoting it and having a big premiere in Baltimore April 18th at the Charles Theater. So it's exciting. I'm I'm happy for you, man. I'm, I'm glad that you got it done. Um, you took on a very, very, very polarizing uh, topic to uh document and it's mm-hmm. you know it, people were very split down the middle with the presence of the squeegee kids in the city throughout the last handful of years uh what was it like uh coming up with that idea and kind of putting it into motion so it started with my brother and I Timothy who was my filmmaking partner my filmmaking partner who since passed away um, and we had the idea probably about 2018. We did a, our first documentary was called Paused in Time. It was a documentary on Baltimore's hip hop scene. And so we had did some other film work after that. And we wanted to get back in the documentary world. And, you know, it just came to us to document uh, this group of people, this historic culture of squeegeeing in Baltimore. And around 2022, I started pre-production on the film and that was about May or June. And in July, the news broke about the incident, uh, the tragic incident between uh, a young man that was squeegeeing and a motorist at Baltimore city. And the motorist was unfortunately killed, you know, within that incident. And so that kind of propelled this whole it took it, it added another layer to the filmmaking process. Like I said, I was already on it, but it added a layer of, you know, squeegeeing becoming even more polarizing because now it became a national, international topic of, uh, you know, what it is, what it represented, and it put a really, really tight microscope on the city of Baltimore. And so, like you said, throughout the process, people have, people are kind of on one side on the other. And my goal with the film was to give all sides of culture, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, but most importantly, to humanize these young men and some of these young women who are also squeegee. And so that's what I, I, I sought to do. I believe that's what I did with my film, Understanding the Misunderstood, was to humanize them and to uh, give you a deeper look into not only squeegee, but the city of Baltimore, why kids squeegee, the past of squeegeeing dated back to the 80s, and um, a perspective from all angles, from the squeegee kids, 
Uh, Mayor Brandon Scott sat down with me, former deputy mayor, now city administrator, Faith Leach, uh, some residents here. It just gives you a total scope of uh, the culture of squeegeeing. That's that's interesting, you know, because it, it's a very it's a hot button topic, depending on uh, who you talk to. Um, if you're a, a member of any neighborhood association or if you just, you know, see people openly talking on social media about the fact that um, they're, you know, knocking on their windows, they're trying to get money from them. Now, I personally have never had an issue out of any of them. Um, the biggest thing to me is I understand the kids are doing it. The, my two biggest problems that I've personally had are never been in uh, interactions. That's more along the lines of why are you not in school? When I'm driving through the city during work hours while I'm at work and what appears to be a 13 to 15 year old young man is squeegeeing and he should be in school. So, I mean, that falls on the family aspect too. And some kids are just going to do what they want to do regardless. And when I see men our age in their thirties and forties that are clearly our age that are doing it. So how did mm -hmm. you uh, address those topics, so to speak, without giving too much away about the film? Yeah. So both of those topics are addressed in the film, uh, understanding and misunderstood. So the first thing is I agree, you know, kids should be in school during school hours and that's talked about in the film. Um, one thing you said is that kids are going to do what they want to do. What I noticed throughout this process is talking to these young men, sometimes they feel like it's what they have to do, right? Because they're coming from broken homes. Uh, they're really, a lot of these, like the main young man in my film, Corey, he's the man of the house and he's 13 years old. So his mom is 28. He has three other siblings. There's four kids in total. Uh, which he doesn't squeeze you during school hours, by the way. But just to give you a look at how someone can, it's like, I'm trying to make money to help my mom pay the rent for this month. You know, I'm trying to help put food on the table, groceries in the fridge. So it's like some of them are taking those risks to, you know, do what they have to do to provide for their household. Um, I also think that the second part to that with people our age and grown men. Again, that's addressed in understanding the misunderstood. And I, I don't think that survival has an age limit. You know, I agree that people should have jobs. You know, there should be more employment. You know, if you're a certain age, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, take those steps to start that entrepreneurial journey or get a job. But again, you know, that it's tough times for people with degrees to get work. A lot of times. So people are just trying to make money, even if they have a job. Some of the guys out there are using squeegeeing to supplement their income. So they might work at in the evening or work in the morning and squeegee in the other times just to make some extra money. You know, so, yeah, all of that, all of that is addressed in the film. That's going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see the answers given by the actual people that are doing this, because. Some people just see it as kids are out there trying to earn a buck. And then some people are like, oh, well, they should be in school and they need to go get jobs. Or when in reality, 
it's almost it's not, it's like a double edged sword almost because would you rather have them out there washing people's windows and you know doing the little heart on the windshield of the women that are driving or, and doing that kind of stuff, or would you rather have them standing on the corner eighteen hours a day mm-hmm. and 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 running drugs, running money, and we all know we know we all know what goes on in the in the in the city. We know we knows what happens. You know with with you know there that's another option. But the thing is that option will put them in jail, and. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'd rather see them on the corner personally, with with a, a Windex bottle and a squeegee, you know, uh, tool, doing mm-hmm. what they got to do instead of yeah. me seeing them at work. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't want to see you down Central Booking. I don't right. want to see you down in Jessup. I, you know, do your thing. Just don't damage people's shit. You know, don't start fights. Right. You know. You know, just yeah. just try to be as copacetic about it as possible. I think it's cool because um, one of the things I used to rely on, on when I worked on a different shift, I would work on the evening shift, driving down MLK to get on 295 to go to work. There was a kid out there with his dad or his uncle or his brother. I'm not sure who it was, the older gentleman. And not only did they have the squeegee stuff going on, but they had a cooler with water gatorade water. sodas and they had like a, a you know candy bars and stuff like that so if i had a couple of yeah, dollars on me i i i had a i had a cold gatorade going into work you know especially yeah. june yeah. july august I'm, you know that, that that was beautiful for me i didn't have to stop yeah yeah one other thing too i wanted to touch on uh just to backtrack a little bit so also with young men working another aspect another nuance of squeegeeing is that like i said corey who's the main uh focus in the film is 13. so he's under the legal working age at this point so again he wants to provide for his family in a legal way because as we'll see uh city officials say in the film squeegeeing is not illegal so he wants for the family but he can't quite work legally yet so that's his way of hustling in the right way to make some money for the household i get it and and you know when you're 13 and you're the like you said the man of the house and it's a baby raising a baby because his mother you said is under the age of 30 so really most people don't have their life figured out by 30 let alone have four kids by 30 you know, with no help. So it's, it's definitely a, a challenge. And like you said, w- you can't work in the city until you're 15 with a worker's permit from school that's signed mm-hmm. off on by a parent. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you, if you, if you addressed in the uh, documentary itself, Brandon Scott, our mayor, uh, he tried to implement a payment system to where he made them, I guess quasi city employees is that touched on in the documentary as well. So what I can say is that I was part. So the mayor's office, uh, Mayor Scott's administration, created something called the Squeegee Collaborative, right? Which I've been, which I was a part of. I'm still a part of, which is like city leaders, employers, people from across the city coming together to find a resolution and aid for the young men and I said some young women out there as well so 
through that collaborative, some of them were able to get jobs with different corporations, with the city. Um, and I think it's a work in progress, right? So um, I know that for sure has been a financial aid to some of them because I talk to them on a daily, right? Like we still have a rapport. We talk like, man, I'm, you know, I'm working down at Sagamore. I, I learned how I learned etiquette with eating at a table and serving people or I'm at this company, that company. So I know I can speak on that, that, and that's in the film too, that they have gotten jobs, a lot of them through the city and different corporations in Baltimore through the mayor's office. That's good. You know, I, I do like to see, you know, something that's, you know, polarizing, but yet you're trying to find an amicable solution to make it work for everybody involved and not to throw these kids out onto the street where, it could lead into a myriad of different criminal activity, which nobody really yeah. wants. So yeah. um, you're from here. You're from Baltimore. You're born and raised here. Um, yeah. What impact did that play into making this documentary? I, I know that it, you know, the the creative juice has got to be flowing being, being a, a filmmaker and we can talk a little bit about your uh, hip hop documentary as well a little bit later on but what part did that play in your from a personal perspective for you to feel so compelled to make this documentary yeah man i feel like stories should be told from people that are immersed in the culture and especially stories as nuanced as this right like Somebody, I'm from the city, I was born and raised in West Baltimore. Thankfully, my parents, you know, were middle-class people. Uh, so my brother and I didn't have to squeegee. But, you know, with the loss of one job or the loss of a parent, we would have been out there as well, right? So it's like, right, growing up in the city is right in your front yard and it's easy to do. So again, I, I feel like being from the city, these native stories should be told by resonance, you know, by our native sons and our native daughters. And so that's very, uh, something that's very important and special to me. And um, like I said, just building a rapport just over time, filmmaking aside, just seeing the young men, giving them a couple of dollars, having a real conversation with them, you know, showing them real love and then seeing, oh man, this should be documented because that story needs to be told to the world. So that's how that came about. That that's an important aspect to it. I and I do resonate that you know nobody can tell our story as a city better than the people that were a part of it, and mm -hmm. that applies for everything you know, filmmaking or or not. But um, how long did it take you to earn Corey's trust in terms of him being comfortable enough to be? on film front and center as a 13 year old, because some 13 year olds are still very introverted or they could be camera ready and ready to rock. But he has a very, he has a lot on his shoulders. What was building the rapport like with Corey? Uh, it took a while, <laughs> you know, so I met Corey again. I met Corey just squeegee, like coming up on him and letting him wipe my window and giving him a couple of dollars and having a conversation with him. But it was important, especially because he's a minor, it was important for me to meet Corey's mom, right? And all mm -hmm. of us to sit down and understand exactly what it is that I'm doing and the story that I want to tell. 
Because again, you know, with this issue, it's like, where are you trying to go? Do you have some type of ulterior motive? So I had to sit down with Corey and his mom, who's been wonderful through this whole process. And uh, after we built the rapport and I, I explained to them what I was doing and told them about my history in filmmaking in Baltimore, it was it was pretty much smooth sailing. Corey's a really great kid with a really bright future. That's good. I mean, it was, you know, to include the mother in the, in the conversation, I know that was needed because you didn't need anything, you know, going sideways in, in the pursuit of this project. Um, I know it's fair. It's fair to question because like you said, every, everybody has a different experience in this city and ulterior motives are definitely a thing. It's very prevalent and it's not even really that well hidden anymore. It's, it's on the front street that there's ulterior motives for almost everything going on on the street. Um, mm -hmm. did you, do you believe that there was a roadblock initially because they, they saw this as a, a potential short-term money grab to be featured? Yeah, I mean, there's that. And then there's, again, I started filming. I started actually filming in the heat of uh, the controversy in 2022. And so a lot of the young men didn't want to be filmed because like there were news outlets out there try to grab clickbait stories, try to do like arterial motive pieces. So when they saw me with a camera, they're like, man, big bro, you got to put that up. Like we don't want to be on camera. So that was difficult. That was very difficult early on. Um, but again, so I think it's about separating uh, the art from the artist. It's about being a person first. And going out there having conversations with them and just telling them, I'm one of y'all. Like, again, if my parents weren't working or if they lost a job, if it was a recession and things were tough, I would have been out here squeezing too at 15, at 14, at 13. So it did present uh, somewhat of a challenge. And um, it kind of threw a wrench in the process early on, but we were able to work the kinks out. That's good. Um what was what was it like though when you were out filming and, and in the height of the unfortunate incident and then you're seeing all the news crews literally chasing the squeegee kids off the corner because they wanted a story they wanted that clickbait they wanted that 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 trendy topic and you're out here trying to legitimately do a project and by no by no fault of your own, you're lumped in with the rest of the local news media because you're a man with a camera trying to talk. So mm -hmm. I'm sure they had a little bit of frustration on the side of the local news stations, just not being able to do anything else and focus on that incident. And then what ensued after that? Yeah, like I said, it was tough, Matt. It was tough, but I think that so I look at everything, especially in the creative process, everything is a marathon, right? So in the beginning, you got people running fast and pacing, you know, try to try to get off to a quick start. But eventually you got to pace yourself and you got to slow down and figure out your purpose here, right? So I knew my purpose wasn't just for a clickbait, fast-paced story. You know, I, I knew it was bigger than that. So I had to wait that out. I had to wait for all these news stations to run off because now it's like the news isn't really covering anymore. You know, so I'm still here with the kids. I'm still having conversations with them. I'm still talking to them on a daily. 
you know, um, so for me, it was just waiting the whole process out. And like I said, just continuing to build that rapport with the young man, you know, because I know why I'm here. Again, I'm not here just for something for a quick, you know, uh, for a quick story. I'm here to to, to build relationships and, and have their story told to the world. I'm glad that you were fortunate enough to, you know, wait that out without, you know, being detrimental to the end game because uh, it's interesting in Baltimore right now because it's always going to be a focus on the crime. It's always going to be a focus on the murders. It's always going to be but for the first time in 2023 in about 10 years, uh, we were under the 300 murder mark and mm-hmm. the pace isn't really picking back up. We're kind of trending downward again this year. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems like the news is, you know, all three news stations are struggling to find things to cover, but that in them yeah. pursuing other things, you're, you know, that cleared the way for you and you've been working with mayor Scott. Um, he's got a lot on his plate. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, you know, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox about this because I've been a lifelong resident in Baltimore City, just like you. And um, people are expecting monumental change in a city mm-hmm. that's been weighed down by generations, decades of yep. incompetence and people with shitty ulterior motives. So yep. to expect Brandon Scott to alleviate the pain and the suffering and the, the misfortune in a four year stretches is damn Mm -hmm. near unreasonable. And Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I try not to lose sight of that, you know, because it's frustrating, you know, we went through, we went through, you know, whether you're whatever side of the aisle you're on, we went through Sheila, we went through SRB, we went through Pew and then Mm -hmm. Brandon comes in. Who's, our generation, mid thirties, late thirties, you know, kind of has his ear to the floor of the, of the streets of the city and he's trying to do his best. But when you got an uncooperative city council and you got an uncooperative local government, there's only so much you can do, but yeah, it's good to see that he's making strides and it's really cool to see that you're there doing that. Um, to yeah, kind man. of backtrack a, a little bit, though, Matt, uh, you said that you just finished a Baltimore hip hop documentary. Uh, what was that like? Who who all was in that documentary? You don't have to say so hip hop, of course, but yeah, it was a lot of people. <laughs> but my hip hop documentary was my first film, and that was back in two thousand and nine. Um, mm-hmm. And man, I had everybody from the likes of Boss Man, Comp. Uh, my homeboy Easy Jackson, who was a great hip hop figure in the city, it just had a lot of people on there. Um, and that was me and my brother Tim's first uh project to the world. Again, being residents here and being immersed in the culture, we just want to tell stories that are for us by us. Um, and so that was that was a, a fun project, reached some success, went to the film festival circuit, but. Uh, yeah, now with understanding the misunderstood, just to backtrack a little bit, what you were talking about with Mayor Scott, uh, I give him my full respect. As you'll see in the film, again, like I stated earlier, squeegeeing has been around for decades, right? Baltimore has been historically oppressed for decades. Uh, the 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 practice of redlining was actually started in Baltimore, 
um, by a mayor in 1911. And we'll touch on that in the film. So in the film also, you get to see, I go back to Mayor William Schaefer's administration and how he dealt with squeegeeing at that time in 1985 and the struggle between white members and black members of the Baltimore City Council. Fast forward to 2022 when I started filming, now 2024 with Mayor Scott's administration and their push to you know, give the youth a hand and give them real opportunities in the city. So all of that's going to be covered in the film. That's, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a, I'm a figure out a way to, uh, take a look at it, you know, and it's, it's interesting that your first, uh, feature film was the hip hop culture of Baltimore. I've had, I've been doing this show for just about three and a half years. I started in Christmas of 2020 and, um, Okay. It was a pandemic. It was a pandemic project. You know, I wasn't working a whole lot. You know, the courts were closed and all that. But uh, I actually had a chance to kind of get involved into the hip hop scene in Baltimore and talk to quite a few um, artists over the years and producers. I've talked to, you know, uh, Jay Oliver, uh, Fresh Air. Mm -hmm. I've talked to him. Uh, I got a chance to interview Tim Trees. I had a chance mm -hmm. to interview uh, Jetta Davis from 92Q. And mm -hmm. uh, more recently, I befriended Lenwood. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine. We've, you know, he's been on a bunch of shows with me now. Um, mm -hmm. Logan James, it, Larry Woodup is a really good friend of mine as well. So it's it, it's been interesting to see the, the dynamic, the culture, and the influence nationwide in a lot of the music and in the industry itself from people mm -hmm. that are from the city. I've had a chance to talk to Damon blue. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's so it's incredible to actually get a chance to experience it because I'm through this, I got a chance to tap into a, a different culture and it's been enlightening. It's been a great process. And for you to document that that's really cool because I documented every time I talked to one of them, you know, one of the, mm -hmm. one of the artists. So it's yeah. rewarding. Yeah. It's challenging, but it's rewarding because it's out of my comfort zone. And I'm, a, and yeah. I'm, and I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm self aware enough to admit that it's been, it was completely out of my comfort zone, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's great to see now that there's some Baltimore artists that are really making noise on a national stage. Skull is touring the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lil Key's over in Texas. And uh, he yeah. I think he might be back right now, but he was he was he was over in Texas for a while. Um yeah. Damon Blues down Tate in Atlanta. Cobain. Tate Cobang. A lot of these guys are making making waves. Logan James is now touring the world um as an independent artist, which is cool. I went to school with Logan. We both went to Mount St. Joe over in West Baltimore. Um Okay. So it's nice to, you know it's nice to see that we're getting recognized for more than just the wire. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I mean, Baltimore's hip hop scene has forever been fruitful, uh, you know, from the club scene to just actual lyricism, like guys really spitting, like we're known for that. Like Baltimore has just as much, if not respectfully, more talent than Atlanta or any of these markets doing big numbers with big, huge artists, like 
Baltimore is truly a diamond in the rough, man. And it, like you said, it's great to see now people getting that recognition and we're slowly starting to uh, overcome that hump of national and global success. Yes, it is. It's really nice. And there's a lot of talented people here. And no matter how you want to spin it, no matter what what the national perception is, to see people making it out and making an impact is 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 a is a fantastic thing and I'm proud of it no matter how people want to view it. It's it's something to be proud of because you can look on TV, you can look on social media and there's somebody that's from Baltimore that's doing something beautiful. Absolutely. Agreed. One hundred percent agree. Yeah. I wanted to, I want to ask you though, from your first documentary to the current one, I know same city, same culture, different aspects of the culture. Uh, what, not to, not to, you know, draw it out completely, Matt, but what was the biggest difference in sitting down and talking with the people that you were featuring going from the hip hop scene to, pretty much hustling on the street in a, in a legal way. Yeah. I think that it's all kind of tied into each other, right? Um, from the young men who, you know, are hip-hop influence. So, I mean, we all come from the same culture. The city is small for one, right? But the culture is all, like, immersed and intertwined into each other. So the topics were different, but... Um, the subject matter was different, but like the moving parts around it were pretty much the same. Just my interview subjects were a little bit younger this time around. You know what I mean? So a lot of similarities. Uh, this one had a political side to it again with the mayor's office. I uh, sat down with Congressman Kwaisi Fume over in D.C., who was a former city council member here in Baltimore in 1985 yes. with uh you know, when they were dealing with the whole squeegee issue back then. So I asked him about, you know, then and now with the squeegee issue. So this had a political influence, but a lot of the same similarities as my first film. That's, that's, that's interesting. Being an independent filmmaker and having your own company and you're not attached to any big name production company or filmmaking company, it's just you boots on the ground was there challenges to getting some of the government officials to sit down? Yes and no. Uh, surprisingly, man, well, I got, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I can be pretty convincing at times, you know, and <laughs> I think because of the subject matter and the topic, people were genuinely willing to speak on it. Right. So you have that aspect. You got one. That's a two part. That's a two headed monster. So one aspect is lovely. I can do what I want to do. I can film people how I want to film them as far as like ask them the questions I want to ask them. I don't have an overhead to say, say this or say that. Um, and also, you know, Hollywood has gone through a major decline with the, uh, the writer strike. So because I'm independent, I'm not attached to a major company. The writer strike didn't affect me. I can continue to work and continue to film and produce. But the flip side is that it's a lot of work. The independent grind is a lot of work. And I know you know, being a podcaster and doing your thing since COVID started, working independently is a lot of work. I mean, it's like driving over to D.C., 
going to Capitol Hill, dealing with Capitol Police for an interview is a whole nother monster, right? But all of these elements make this a really tough job, but I'm really passionate about what I do. I love what I do. So it all it all makes sense in the end. I I, I hear you. Um, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. And when people think Baltimore, they think The Wire, they think Homicide Life on the Street, and even more recently, HBO had a somewhat sequel to the wire with the six part series of we own the city shameless mm-hmm. self plug. I was an extra in it, you know, so <laughs> I, like, okay. you know, I like to mention okay. that when I can, um, I didn't right. have a speaking part. It was the, it was some of the easiest work I ever done for money in my life. But, uh, right. The, there's a, there's still, uh, I guess a reputation that we have, so to speak, amongst mm-hmm. amongst the rest of the country about you know we're we're dangerous we're a war zone what was it like making the film and then promoting it and then putting it in front of film festival higher ups to say like this isn't a, a wire situation or this isn't your typical baltimore quote unquote you know dangerous city ghetto type type of situation that you had something that you wanted to legitimately push was there any challenges in your quest to the finish line yeah i mean you know so i'm still in the process of going through the film festival circuit as we speak and it's challenging man because um this is a very cultural story a lot of people especially outside of the city don't quite get it you know i mean even though squeegeeing is bigger than baltimore it's you know throughout the nation my homeboy told me you know, squeegee kids in Jamaica and the Philippines. So it's a global story, but it's it's very much um, like something that's very special and specific to Baltimore at the same time. So, I mean, that's challenging, man, to get people to, to, to understand it outside of the city. I still face those challenges. And Baltimore is a very, um, Baltimore is a dichotomy in a way. You know, I always kind of tell people Baltimore is like the tale of two cities that intertwine. So, like, you'll have probably the most prestigious hospital in the world in Johns Hopkins that sits at the helm of, like, one of the biggest ghettos in the city, right? You got uh, what we refer to as the block in Baltimore with all the strip clubs, and uh, the police headquarters sits on that block. So it's like all of these worlds that, like, They cross each other, but they're still separate. And it's been like that for centuries, you know, since the 1900s going back. So, you know, all of this is a part of the story. Like I said, it's challenging to present this to people outside of the city, but I'm up for the challenge. You know, they're slowly but surely, they're starting to get it. That's an interesting part of the city. You know, like you you just said, you got the block that used to be huge, and now it's just six or seven spots right there. And... Then you got central headquarters to the Baltimore Police Department right there. Then you around the corner, you got the city circuit courts. You got the Mitchell building and the post office building. And then you got the Baltimore City Sheriff's right there. And and then in the midst of all that, you got, you know, our daily bread, the homeless shelters, baby bookings. That is a that is a very intricate and wild, you know, five, six, seven set of blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And that's, I mean, that's just the city. It's, it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's different. And like I said, it's, it's, it's sort of a dichotomy in that way. You know what I mean? And that's all throughout the city. You know, all of these pockets, all of these racial intersections, all of these cultural and social intersections, they intertwine, but they're separate at the same time in a weird way. You're right. And when you talk about that, uh, a perfect example is you have that section of the city where you have uh, city jail, you have central booking, you have Latrobe projects right behind the jails. And then yep. you drive five minutes down the, the street, you're in Little Italy. Yep. yep. It's not even, it's a five minute with lights. It's it's four blocks down the street and you're in the heart of Little yeah. Italy and you wouldn't even know you're in the same city yeah. when, when the sun goes yeah, down. For sure. For sure. For sure. Even like a lot of the, the young men used to squeegee on President Street, like right in front of like one of the wealthiest condos in the city. A, a few of them, like right down the street from Harbor East with um, the Four Seasons and all of these prestigious hotels and business and corporations, they're outside wiping windows. You know, like, yeah, that's a perfect example of of that dichotomy we speak of. Absolutely, it is. I wanted to, the last question I wanted to ask you, and I know this, this can be a very long a- answer, and I know that I don't want you to give away your secrets to your filmmaking. I know for a fact that I've talked to Larry Wood up. He just had his film drop tonight. Um, more than hype. And he explained it to me. I wanted to ask you your, your, your process to it. Um, you shoot hours and hours and hours of content and interviews mm-hmm. and you're sitting in your office how do you decide what you want to put in there? Like, what is your thought process? You want everything to flow and you want a certain feel for your documentary itself. And I know you have a vision board or a drawing board that you wanted to uh, obtain to. How many hours of footage did you have to cut through to get to the the final version of your film? Man, I mean... I have so much, Matt, I got like, just to put it in like numeric terms, I got like eight terabytes of footage. Wow. Hours and hours and hours of footage. So a lot of times for me, the way my creative process works, the way my mind works is sometimes when I'm filming, like as I'm shooting and interviewing, I can see the film coming together. Like I'll have like stuff that I write out, like a one pager, you know, I might write out a script or, you know, just have like a, a like just context on paper of where I want to go. But the creative process sometimes takes you and pulls you in different directions. And sometimes things happen just kind of by chance, like even the whole redlining piece of the film that kind of happened by mistake. You know, I wasn't quite aware early on how that intertwined with squeegeeing, but that happened kind of by chance. And so that became an integral part of the the story, the foundation of the story. So, yeah, I mean, it comes different ways for me. It comes while I'm filming. I can see it. Then I'll make a note of it. Uh, I'll go and just watch footage and see what works where. It, you know, like I said, I've been working on this for the past year and a half. So I had to take like two months just to let it go, just to leave it alone, because I kind of caught 
writer's block and I had to go watch some documentaries. I had to watch some film to kind of see where I wanted to piece things at. So it's different parts of the whole process, but it all comes together. Can you explain your emotions when you finally put everything together and you watched it all the way through, which I'm sure you did hundreds of, or possibly thousands of times over the course of the last couple of years. What was your emotion? What was your initial emotion when you realized that you were done the filmmaking aspect in itself, like you finished product, all the hours left on the cutting room floor. What was your initial emotion to reaching your goal? Relief, relief, gratitude, um, like I said, I started this with my brother who's no longer here, you know, so to have come from that point, from point A all the way to point Z, it's relief, man. Just a lot of relief, a lot of gratitude, solitude. Uh, I'm just grateful and thankful. But for me also, I'm always working up to the last minute. Like today, I was reopening some files to add some here, add some there. So. Until I screen on April 18th at the Charles Theater, I'll probably be adding little pieces or tweaking a little bit of sound. And again, the backtrack, that's one of the benefits of being independent. You know, I don't have to turn any files into anybody. So it's a relief to get everything done, but it's also exciting. To, you see, oh, I can add something here. I can add a little piece there. So, yeah. How do you turn it off, man? I, like you said, you had the writer's block for a minute and you didn't want to hit that burnout stage. But now that you, you, you've you put in the work over the last couple of years and the product is ready for release, even though you're still you know tweaking things, and you probably will be up until the night before, but how do you just shut your mind off because creative juices constantly flow? Man, I wish I had to answer that one, Matt. I don't, I don't have a shut off button, man. I'd be up at one o'clock in the morning and just going through ideas, watching old films, old TV shows, Streets of San Francisco, you know, uh, old movies, the original Ocean's Eleven. Like, I'm just constantly in creative mode, man. I'm working on, you know, an outline for the next film and the next narrative. And like I said, the only time it really shuts off is when it shuts off forcibly with writer's block. But um, for me, trying to shut it off, impossible, at least at this point. It's got to be tough because I know even though you're 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 in the, the film festival run now, which is the hustling part of getting your getting eyeballs on your documentary, you're, you probably got 15, 20 ideas a day popping into your head. So I, I can only imagine what it's like and still having to focus on everything at hand in the day to day life. It, it, but yeah. it was interesting, though, Matt. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and kind of giving us a bird's eye view of your your of your thought process, your your of, of not only making the film, but how you approached every individual aspect of it, from the political side to the street side, and how you intertwined everything in your own beautiful way. Uh, thank you so much much for coming on to the show and before we uh go to post show off air uh where can everybody find you on social media to follow along in your adventure and to keep tabs on the release of your documentary yeah thank you for having me matt i appreciate you like i told you off there sticking in there with me since 2022 and 
us finally connected. So thank you for having me. Uh, people can find me on social media, on Instagram, <clears throat> at Mateos, M-A-T-E-O-S-S-W-A-Y. Um, my YouTube is Cooper Brothers Productions. And the film is, again, titled Understanding the Misunderstood. Tickets are almost sold out. You can find me on Eventbrite, misunderstood.eventbrite.com. Get your tickets ASAP. It's about to be sold out. It's going to be a big event, a big night. We're going to premiere the film. Then we're going to have a Q&A afterwards with myself, some of the youth that squeegee. Uh, City Administrator Faith Leach is going to be on there with me, hosted by news anchor Kyle Jackson. So it's going to be a huge night, uh, April 18th at the Charles Theater. People can get their tickets at uh, misunderstood.eventbrite.com. There you have it, folks. Uh, thank you for tuning in, everybody. Um, hang out for post-production for you know, post-show for a couple minutes, and that's a wrap, folks. Matt, thanks again for joining. Yeah, thank you.